Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to this episode of the What's Next podcast, where I have the pleasure of welcoming Amy Webb to the show today. She advises CEO, CEOs of the world's most admired companies, three-star admirals and generals, and the senior leadership of central banks and intergovernmental organizations. She's the founder of Future Today Institute, a leading foresight and strategy firm that helps leaders and their organizations prepare for complex futures. Amy pioneered a data-driven, technology-led foresight methodology that is now used within hundreds of organizations. Forbes called her one of the five women changing the world. No pressure. <laughs> she was honored as one of BBC's 100 Women of 2020 and was named to the Thinkers 50 radar list. There's so many other things that I, I really, I could go on for five minutes, but welcome Amy to the show. Hey, Tiffany. Thank you for having me. It's just a pleasure, really. I've, I've watched your work uh, for so many years, so I'm thrilled that you said yes. But before we get into the conversation, I'm going to start with something I call bullish and bearish. It just kind of gets all the juices flowing, a little bit of fun. Uh, bullish, you're for it. Bearish, you're against it. Are you ready? I am. All right. The first one, immersive video virtual reality experiences. Yeah, uh, bearish. Um, you may say why. <laughs> Hold that thought. Sure. Hold that thought. Sure. All right. All right. The second one is uh, science fiction movies. Bullish or bearish? Um, I think that's a perennial bull, right? B bullish. Yep. All right. And the third one, another fun one, a robot clarinet player. Oh. Um. Yeah. So that's that's sadly bullish. So interesting. You, it was, it was sort of not what I expected you to say. I, okay. I'm going to go back to the bearish okay. on immersive video VR experiences. So tell, tell us why. First of all, um, AR slash VR is not a thing. These are fundamentally augmented reality and virtual reality are fundamentally different technologies. They use different, they, they use different technologies, different hardware is different software. They're, they are different things. Um, augmented reality has a lot of growth in the near term. Vir immersive virtual reality has a fairly narrow set of use cases. And if you, I mean, the people who get very excited about VR are either people who aren't super into gaming, but do like tech. And then like executives who have never had a head mounted display on their faces before. So, <laughs> um, so that, you know, in order for VR to really take off, you have to be in a space if it's truly immersive, everything else is blocked out around you. So you've got to be in a trusting environment. You can't eat while you're doing VR. I mean, there's, there's a lot that you cannot do. So mixed reality is much more likely. There's many more use cases. It's, it's much more, it's much stronger growth. Yeah, the first time I did a uh, virtual reality experience was on bias training, and it was mm -hmm. fascinating. It was fascinating. You know, they had other ones that were like, you know, step off a cliff, which sure. I think you did, you know, other things. Uh, but that one was um, really uh, special. And I mean that in a way that I felt like I had the experience. Yeah. 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 But you can also feel like you're having that experience without blocking out the world around you. So that's the promise of mixed reality, which is more immersive than it. It sort of turns the environment around you into a computable interface. Um and so rather than layering on like a two-dimensional uh, overview or overlay in front of your vision, which is what augmented reality is, this makes the surfaces responsive. If you throw a ball in mixed reality, it observes physics. 
Um, and you can see people in mixed reality and have some of those same transformative experiences because they can calculate and, and respond to your reactions in real time. Well, I, I think what makes this so fascinating, if you haven't sort of already gathered that Amy is brilliant around the story and what's happening from a tech perspective. And I really want to dig into that because uh, she just recently uh, launched uh, and released, I guess, um, something at South by on the new top tech trends. Uh, and just to give this a little bit of perspective, it's the 14th time they've done it. I guess your 14th annual. Mm -hmm. And there are 500 trends. <laughs> So if you're so looking what for is some light reading. <laughs> yeah. So so we, my organization, the Futures Institute, does two things, primary things. So we track using um, data and some of its heuristics, some of its uh, AI driven. Um, we track the forces, signals, and trends that are shaping the future. And the trends that we track are longitudinal. So for 14, 15 years it's been, um, we've been tracking the pro progression of, of trends as they mature. And for that reason, they, we, the list doesn't typically shrink unless there's consolidation or, or new, um, new inflections. Instead, it tends to grow a little bit. And typically, year over year, it does grow a little bit. But the, but the sheer number of uh, COVID aftershocks, you know, COVID sort of reset the, the board, um, that we wound up with a 22% increase. And for something to become a trend, um, to, to leap from our signals list to our trends list, it has to meet certain quantitative criteria. So, you know, there's a lot. And, and we use this research to underpin the scenario planning that we do. Um, so the trends, the other thing I would say is we produce this annual report. It's read by millions of people every year, but it should not be seen as the answer. Um, it should be seen as a new way to, for inquiry, like a new way to ask questions. Well, there's three things you just said in that in that response, and one I want to make sure I, I start with, which is um, how I found you and your work was your amazing book called "The Signals Are Talking." I guess it's a couple years old now, um, but it really opened my eyes about what it was when I was talking to people, what it was I grabbed onto, and it was those signals that I was hearing consistently from someone. You know, it might be I had a hundred conversations and randomly 60 of them said the same thing or asked a very similar question just in a different way. And so that to me was a quote unquote signal. And I never had a word for it until I sort of, you know, read your book. Um, I'd love to start there because I think that, you know, let's put uh, the pandemic aside for a second, because I think we'll talk about that. But when you're looking for signals, if someone's listening and going, what does that even mean? Mm -hmm. and, and what am I looking for? H how would you describe it? Sure. So you know, there's a lot of books that explain how to do scenario planning. And in fact, at Salesforce, the sort of OG of modern uh, scenario Peter planning, Schwartz. Peter Schwartz. Schwartz. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you have not, if you're listening to this and you have never read The Art of the Long View, uh, correct yourself, get that book right away and read it. It's it's absolutely fantastic. And, and although it was written in the 90s, it still holds up. So The Signals Are Talking is the book to read before um, that because it explains how do you detect the signal from the noise in a way that is meaningful. So what are signals? Um, at any given time, there are blips of information that give us some indication of how things are changing. There are weak signals and strong signals. Um, and these are not the same thing as the sort of big macro forces that you would typically track. So I think a lot of people who work in strategy, especially you're used to looking at big macroeconomic changes and big, um, geopolitical changes, things like that. 
Signals are small bits of information which sometimes on their own either look like outliers where they look interesting, um, but they don't necessarily feel like they have strategic importance. Over time, these signals coalesce and they cluster in different ways. And that's what um, that, that's where we see these big sweeping changes. When companies feel like they've missed an inflection point or they've missed what was around the corner, it's because they weren't tracking these signals and trends. And the problem is that most organizations, I mean, I think probably you've seen this as well. Everybody, they just want the information relevant to them for like the next 12 months. Just tell me the things that I need to know to make my decision right now, right? Um, and that works out really well if you work in real-time strategy. But if you, if you have to think about your organization into the future, you you know, you're making a big assumption about where the change is coming from and change is coming from all over the place. Every organization is being squeezed. So you have to pay attention to signals emerging in augmented reality or in mixed reality, right? Or in robot playing clarinetists or, you know, whatever. I guess this would be not a robot playing clarinetist. It would be a really robot clarinetist, but, um, or even the, the NFTs that everybody's excited about for five seconds right now. These are non-fungible tokens and it's, you know, my dad knows what that is. So that tells you something. Uh, he's a, he's pretty hardcore laggard. Um, you know, in some way there are reverberating effects. So the job is to figure out what is the difference between signals that matter and noise. And that's not something that you can do using your gut. You need a methodology and a process and you have to rely on data to do that work. So that's what the, the book is all about. Yeah. And, and I would say, you know, often I get that same question and you said it right at the end, you can't find them without the data. And, you know, the very famous quote, data is the new oil. I'm not sure who originally said it, but I think that that's part of the equation because you can't pull up to an oil rig and fill up your car. I think data being the oil, that would lead me to believe that AI uh, uh, is, um, so, I'm sorry, the analytics, sorry, is the refinery. And then the insights is the petrol or the gasoline that sort of powers the business, right? So you go from data, got to analyze it, right? And then you're looking for the insights. And if you don't have the data, I don't know if you get to insights. Tell me, do you agree with that? Don't agree with that? Missing um, something? I don't know if the analogy holds, but yeah, I, I think generally speaking, for a while, there was this idea that more data is better. So I watched a lot. I mean, my... My team and I primarily work with the senior executives at these organizations, and everybody got really excited for a while about big data, capital B, capital D. And then they got very excited about data lakes. Everybody was very excited about data. Um, and it was very challenging, I think, to, to get people to realize that sometimes, you know, more data is just more data. Sometimes more data is worse, right? It's, it's what you're reviewing and how you're using it and why. And it just requires a much, much more sophisticated approach. And, you know, you can't just build a dashboard. You can't dashboard your way right. <laughs> out of it because you're right. The insights are what matter, but you can't absolve yourself from coming up with those insights. I think that's the, and maybe this is what you, you intended, um, you, you were saying, you, you can't automate this. You have to inject yourself into the process. And I think what I'm observing is that a lot of executives think AI is this panacea. Um, if we if we just have more data, we can have more insights. And we'll just automate the insights and then we'll make our decisions at the end of all of this. I mean, you're putting a lot of trust in somebody else's algorithms 
if that's what well, you're doing. Yeah. Not only that, it's, you know, if it's dirty data, it's bad data out. Right. right? And so you've got the whole, the whole sort of problem. But what I've definitely noticed is, and, and I agree with you, sort of big data, big D, big B, right. It was big data. Um, and then it was sort of analytics. That was another one, right. That was sort of, people got very excited about it, but I've also seen executives uh, and even just individual contributors not trust those insights, like not trust the signals that are coming out that they feel like, okay, it's sort of small, small little pits of it that may not alone be something, but you know, you're not then going to trust, well, hold on a second. Like this is making me feel like we should be going in this direction and not the direction we're going in, but they rely so heavily on it's the way we've always done it. We tried it that way. It didn't work. And so how do you get people to minus all the things we just said, right? Dirty data, the bias in the algorithm, whatever it might be. But if the data is good and it comes out and gives you these signals, why do you think execs don't lean into it? And then what can they do if they're not? Uh, I think that there's an incredible pressure to always have the right answer. And that's a dangerous position to be in. What would it take to be 100% right all of the time? You would need to be Dr. Manhattan. Are you a comic book reader at all? Have you ever read The Watchmen? (laughs) Okay. Five people who've listening to this right now know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Dr. Manhattan is radioactive and has all knowledge all the time. Uh, Anyway, what what would it take for you to always be right? I mean, it's an unrealistic expectation. And, And I think if you asked any... CEO, are you right all of the time? That CEO is going to say, no, of course I'm not right all the time. Great. So if that's the case, why must you have 100%? Why is the standard that every uh, every part of this process must be entirely accurate all the time, right? What we're really getting at is uncertainty. Organizations are not, you know, the, the, the fr- organizations should be built around some first principles related to uncertainty, but it's the opposite. They are, they are metrics driven and I'm a data person, right? So I'm going to be the first person to tell you numbers matter, but I'm also going to be the first person to tell you, so is, fle- you know, flexibility is important too. Um, and I, I just don't see enough executives uh, willing to go beyond their comfort zones. And I think that has to do with uncertainty. If the last 18 months have told us nothing, and we've learned nothing at all, hopefully we have learned that that um, our current models are very brittle. And they're brittle because they are reliant on e- exact uh, accuracy at all, at all times. Um, a lot of companies' financial models broke because they didn't account for chaos and chance which is ridiculous, right? And and quite frankly, like they were broken. They just never acknowledged it. A lot of companies just get better at measuring the things that they measure and then they score themselves based on those measurements over and over and over again. And they wonder then why at some point they've missed an adoption cycle. They've missed a curve. They've missed the inflection and, you know, and now here they are. So uncertainty, you know, this feels like a paradox, but you can be extraordinarily good at modeling data, and I think my team and I are, while at the same time being extraordinarily good at um, at at sitting with ambiguity and leaning into uncertainty. Those things seem opposite, but they actually go hand in hand. Yeah, and I think the baseline of that is, you know, people have to get much more comfortable with being uncomfortable and not knowing the answers. Right. And just because you don't know it doesn't mean you're not going to re- figure out what it is. But to mm-hmm. your point, not everybody is going to be uh, 100% correct all the time, which then leads me to kind of the second part of this, this question that I have. If signals is one 
Uh, and you mentioned uh, Peter Schwartz from a, a scenario planning standpoint. And when I first started working here five years ago, like he was one of the first people I sought out because I was like, I want to hear amazing. you teach yeah. me yeah. about scenario planning because I'm going to the OG, like I'm going to the person, like I want to know, yep. tell me, right? And we had this whole conversation about scenario planning. And I was very focused sort of on, at the time, sort of the selling top line growth numbers, right? Like the scenario mm -hmm. is, if leads dry up, what happens? If mm -hmm. leads, you know what I mean? And so what's the scenario? And it wasn't very sexy for him, but it was my way of learning from mm -hmm. him on how I could apply. So of course, as soon as COVID happened and we shut down, Peter went into Peter mode and came out with scenarios of what it's going to look like based on the recovery of when things might quote unquote, get back to some sort of, sort of normalcy and where the risks were. So in that first couple of months, you know, most of my conversations were like, you know, did you have any scenario plans in place if, for example, there was some natural disaster in your state or the manufacturing supply chain, something happened, you know, mm. and the answer would be no. So then you know that they don't have anything like this, where this is global pandemic happens mm. once in a century kind of a thing. So if you were to give somebody, you know, advice as to the power, without going into a full lesson on it, but the power of scenario planning and mm -hmm. why it's important for situations like this, I think it goes a long way. Sure. You know, scenario, first of all, scenario planning, I, I see it done really poorly at a lot of organizations because I think there's a sense that you just come up with a optimistic, a neutral, I mean, that, that is one way to do it. It's a sort of easy way to get into the process of doing it. Um, but it's actually a pretty rigorous, uh, discipline and it's usually requires months. Um, there's a lot of planning, there's a lot of research, it's a lot. Um, so you don't have to do full blown scenario planning all the time. You can do scenarios thinking and anybody can do that. There's no barrier to entry other than you. So a scenarios thinking project would simply be, you know, I just heard two unusual high impact, high uncertainty things right? Um, I wonder if, if one of these things happens and my business continues to do whatever, what's the possible outcome? And all you have to do is think about it, right? Um, so, so there are practical scenarios, thinkings, thinking applications that you can and should be doing all of the time. Now, obviously from there, um, the process gets much more involved Scenario planning should not just happen at, at the beginning of a disaster um, or every five years when you're doing your big strategic planning. Um, you, you should be thinking about signals and trends all the time. And if they continue unmitigated, then, and the economy does this, or and your company does that, then what are the plausible next order effects? Um, the more that you get into a cadence of doing that regularly, um, the, the better you are, you, you and your team or you and your organization are going to be at, you know, meeting whatever challenges are on the horizon. Um, there's another really quick exercise, um, that anybody can do. It's, it's silly, but another way to approach this is for the next week, do one thing different every day. That's it. Um, because what it does is it puts some of the scenario planning into action, so you do one different thing, sleep on the, a different side of the bed, eat breakfast for dinner, and notice how your perspective starts to change. Um, because what scenario planning is also about is breaking free from your established patterns and confronting your cherished beliefs. 
um, one of the great benefits of doing scenario planning is the conversation. It's the insights that you gain from having the conversation doing the work. That in some ways is almost as valuable as the output of the scenario itself. Yeah. And so you could even say, okay, what happens if, you know, my sales team does not go back in the field for another six months? What does it look like? What if they go back in three? What if they go back for a year? I'm just making that up, right? Yeah. And, it, and it could just be that you literally say it out loud in your next team meeting. What happens if we don't get back into the field for another six months? What are we going to do? Right. Right. Yeah. So, so you could, you could use time as a variable or money as a variable. Things get really interesting if you say, you know, what happens if my team doesn't go out into the field for the next six months and another global pandemic, another big virus happens tomorrow. I know nobody wants to think about that, but it's not like we just got a, got, we didn't just get a, um, get out of jail free card. Just because we've like, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel on this pandemic does not mean that we are immune from the next. Um, so th- I know I know nobody wants to think about that, but it's kind of important um, because the companies that were really challenged are ones that, um, I mean, you can backwards engineer the challenges that they're facing right now to decisions that should have been made probably five years ago in digital transformation and business dynamics and things like that. Right. I know oh my I'm God, I couldn't the, agree anymore. Couldn't right, agree right. anymore. Like I feel like the pan, and I've said this a lot, is I feel like the pandemic cracked open the lack of investments that have been made for the last decade, mm-hmm. right? Having come from Gartner, we've been talking about all, all companies become IT companies, you know? the digital power of the way in which you're going to engage with all the, all the things that go in, right? It was big data, social, uh, mobile, and cloud were sort of the, you know, the convergence of these four um, uh, trends. And, and yet we had to close overnight and you had some businesses that didn't even have an online presence. It was like 70% of small businesses did not have sort of an online presence. So if you're not going to be able to sell in your retail store and you don't have the ability to sell online, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. So I think the question now would be, I agree with you. I don't know if we need to talk about it being another pandemic, but the question is, you know, what if it's something like, what if my network went down for two days, right? right? And no one could work remote now that everybody is remote. Like, how would you handle it? Right. Like even just something like that. And I think it's asking those tough questions uh, and um, being well, open to what the answers might be. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that. I think that highlights a few things. First of all, um, there are different types of, there, there's different ways to plan for the future. So you're describing contingency planning. What happens if these things go wrong? There's war gaming, right? Which is, um, red team and blue team. Uh, we've got a central problem or a central issue that has to be confronted. We've got people who are acting against it and people who are trying not to act, you know, who are trying to help. Um, and then there are, uh, scenarios that use more external factors like, given where we are with the climate crisis, uh, the climate emergency, uh, what does the world look like 15 years from now, 20 years from now, and then what insights do I gain related to my supply chain uh, or logistics or whatever it might be. But the other thing that this highlights and I think is deserves to be foregrounded is that the future is five seconds from now, five minutes from now, 15 years from now, right? Um, and I think that's important to keep in mind because when sometimes when we talk about planning or scenarios or futures, um, it feels so disconnected from the present that there's no sense of urgency. And for a lot of people whose comp is tied to performance or whose teams are thinking about meeting their KPIs and, you know, all of those things, right. Or you have to meet financial targets. Um, 
it can feel frivolous to, to do this work. And only when there is a crisis then, and, and you have to make these decisions under duress, does it happen? This is a good time to remember that the future is going to come at you no matter what. You can plan for it or you can react in real time. Um, I can I can list, I can rattle off businesses on both ends of that spectrum and what happened to them. Um, you know, there are plenty of businesses that have excelled during the pandemic without being opportunistic. Um, and there are plenty of businesses that didn't because they just were not prepared. They were not thinking about the future. And I think, you know, I, uh, there's a great quote that I had in my book that, that was um, from Jeff Bezos, and I'm going to ruin the quote, but the net of it was, if we have a good quarter this quarter, it's not because of something we did today. It's something, the decision we made two years ago. I love that. Right? And yeah, so, that's right. you know, many executives, as you said, right, will be like, I need this fixed right now. And it's really hard in right now if you didn't sort of set the groundwork in the past. And so one of the things I think is, is challenging, both for individual contributors, maybe middle managers and all the way up to leaders is, when do I take the time mm. if I'm in the business, like, in the business and managing the business are kind of two, you know, mm -hmm. planning for the business are two different things. How do you carve out time to have these kinds of questions, mm -hmm. right, with your team and with, with the broader community? So I've worked, I would say the smartest senior leadership team I've ever worked with. I'm not going to name the company, but it was in the telecommunication space. Um, and I just ad admire the heck out of the CEO because... Uh, he asked really smart questions all the time and, and they weren't, he wasn't just like asking questions to ask questions. He was asking questions with the intention that somebody was, they were going to have a conversation. These were, uh, when he heard about something new, saw something different, noticed and was intentionally looking far outside of his own industry, um, at what could be making their market who's going to be making decisions for us and dragging us into the future if we're not actively, you know, all, all of that is just a line of, it's just curiosity. And, um, you have plenty of time in the day to be curious. You just have to dedicate it. it but what does it take to be curious? You have to be okay with uncertainty because when you open up, when, when you unlock that part of you, and again, that the smartest CEOs that, and the most successful ones are people who do this. Um, they, ask a lot of questions and they have the expectation that they're going to have some kind of answer on the other side of it, even if the answer is another question. Um, it's, you know, they are very agile. They have a strong vision. This is another Bezos thing, right? Uh, strong vision and totally okay on the details of, you know, flexible on the details of how to get there. Um, so, so that, that's just a matter of changing your perspective. Um, now in terms of actual foresight work, you can't just hire young people who are interested in cool gadgets and call that your foresight team. Um, your strategy team has to do actual strategic planning work, and they're going to be on regular cycles, time to your fiscal or whenever your board meetings are. So this foresight work has to happen uh, in a complementary way to that strategy team. It has to be tethered to strategy, um, and it has to, in some ways, happen at a more regular cadence. So these are complementary fields, but they have to be done together. I see in a lot of companies foresight answering and foresight's like consumer insights or foresight is part of marketing. Foresight sometimes is, is part of risk. It really is its own thing. Um, and companies should have a dedicated team 
of people who are doing this work all the time and, and working with others in a cross-functional way throughout the organization. But I think what you what you highlighted here is as for you know just people listening is to be more curious, ask better questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had Mark Victor Hansen on, who uh, was the author of Chicken Soup for the Soul, and he wrote a new book called Ask, and it's really mm-hmm. about becoming a master asker. Yeah, right, getting better at asking better questions. So even if your answer it gets back is a question, mm-hmm. but if you're asking better questions, it starts to bring you potentially. I'm going to use your terms, right? Some of these signals you wouldn't have had you not asked the questions, right? People may not know. Should I share this? Ah, it's not that interesting. But in reality, it would be a signal that someone might want to know, which means you got to get better at asking the questions. That's right. And again, if you're just in a mindset where you're curious, that means you're probably going to be looking at information outside of your field. That's the other problem. Too many companies are doing sort of a traditional SWOT analysis, looking at their near peer competitors, and they've completely lost sight of who might be their competitors 10 years from now or five years from now, or who their customers are five years from now. Um, that's another really interesting area to explore, I think. Well, I wish we had another, you know, three hours because <laughs> I would just keep going, especially on that last comment you just made. But Amy, this has been so wonderful. Uh, I'm so glad that I I continued to try to get you on this podcast because I knew it was going to be amazing. So thank you so much for sharing all those great insights. And, and maybe you can share with our listeners how they can keep in touch with your work and then definitely see the new trends report you've put out and, and your new book. Sure. Thanks. Uh, so you can go to futuretodayinstitute.com. Uh, all of our work is open source. Um, so you can download our methodology, our tools. The trend report is also open source. There are actually 12 volumes of it, 13 <laughs> volumes. Um, so that's futuretodayinstitute.com slash trends. Um, and I've written a bunch of books. So if you're interested in futures and foresight, um, uh, you can find the book. Their books are sold everywhere. So. Well, excellent. Well, again, Amy, thank you so much for your kindness and generosity with our listeners today and all of your wisdom. I feel like I need to go back to school after that conversation. But again, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Wow. What an amazing conversation. Once again, I am so glad that I continued to try to get Amy on the What's Next podcast. She just brought it. If there wasn't 10 nuggets of great information you didn't get out of that, I challenge you to listen to it again. But thank you for joining me today. Please subscribe, share with your friends, make sure you check out Amy's work, and I look forward to having you join me on the next time.